Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Today I want to talk about a... Uh, it is, this may not be a particularly coherent uh, episode, which, I mean, it says a lot, I guess, from my usual rambling episodes. But uh, for this one, what I want to talk about is role master the the role-playing game role master and its relationship with its products now why on earth would i want to talk about a role-playing game that apparently uh, very very few people uh, play based on its uh online presence and um uh the fa- and, and you know talking about products that are about 30 years old at this point well the reason is because that's what i'm kind of <laughs> dealing with right now in uh, in part of my preparation for uh 2019 so today i'm going to talk about how the role master system seems to inform some of the setting and also talk about an an issue i see with some older products that i think is applicable for other products going forward and, that, and that's what are you you know the choice that's made by what you include in your um, in your supplements, and for me specifically, I'm going to be talking about a supplement called Jamin's uh, Land of Twilight, uh, something that I've owned uh, for many many years, and I have revisited recently. So that's what we're in for today. So strap in, folks, and let's talk some Rollmaster. All right, so maybe let's start off by talking about what Rollmaster actually is. Uh, Rollmaster is uh, a quite an old game. Uh, it's certainly not uh, what I think most people would consider a an OSR game because uh, it's something that was developed really in response to D and uh, rather than uh, something that was developed, you know, as a furtherance of that or you know um, something that that embraces some of the uh, particular sensibilities of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, in particular, the the game actually seems to be a response and a refutation. Of uh, several of the um, elements of uh, of D and D, in particular, uh, Vancy and magic, uh, the idea of memorizing your spells, and that's uh, from where you draw the uh, spells that you will be casting in the game. It also has a much more complicated um, combat system uh, that uh, both, you know, specifically incorporates a uh, uh, thing where you. Um, can uh, can add defense. You can you know choose to act defensively by uh, adding some of your uh, combat ability to defense rather than just strictly offense. It also really embraces uh, a system of critical hits as being the way that they model the progressive impact of uh, damage on uh, on your character. Um, and those critical hits in you know a uh, can be quite like comedic, uh, but they they're also pretty unpredictable because um, combat attacks uh, in uh, at least the the edition that I'm familiar with uh, were open ended. So if you rolled a hundred on an attack roll, you got to roll again and add it to it, and um, that made uh, combat you know um, it it uh, made combat somewhat un- unpredictable. More often than not, it was fairly predictable, and it was a, a matter of sort of like you know uh, characters slowly whittling down another. Uh, character just like you would as if you were just counting down hit points, but um, in um, uh, in Rollmaster it did also because of the uh, swinginess of the uh, uh, critical hit tables and the swinginess of the attack rolls, it really could make for some very, very unpredictable uh, combats. You could have someone down a dragon with one very, very lucky hit, you know, uh, I mean, the reality was was that very, very rarely happened, and more often than not, what ended up happening is if you had someone who would not, was not, you know, quote unquote, supposed to uh, 
present a challenge to those kind of monsters. The, the likelihood of them ever doing, uh, taking them down was extremely remote. But um, but in any event, it did happen. You know, and, and when I, when I was a kid, we played quite a bit of Rollmaster. Um, the other thing that Rollmaster did was uh, that it it is a very skill based uh, game. So uh, both attacks um, modifiers. This is before the days of. Um, uh, more recent versions of D&D that incorporates a pretty comprehensive skill system. Rollmaster back in the day would have a whole slate of uh, both combat sk- uh, skills, um, maneuvering in armor skills, which would you know judge how uh, difficult you were, uh, how, how well you moved in the armor that you were wearing. Um, and it um, included um, uh, adventuring type skills. Uh, that was later expanded over the course of the uh, game's lifespan to include other non-combat skills, uh, as well as uh, by the time of the companion uh, series, which were basically like optional expansion rules that were regularly pumped out. By companion two, uh, there was a list of about 200 skills, so it was pretty crazy. Like anything conceivably that you could study or do or learn in the uh, game would have those skills. Um, But the core game, itself just had sort of adventuring skills like you would expect from a you know a modern version of Dungeons and Dragons uh, as well as the uh, you know combat related things and spellcasting and so forth spellcasting was likewise a, a different approach I, I mentioned that it was uh, it drew on a kind of pool of spell points that you used to cast uh, from the spells that you knew um, but the way that you learned spells was by uh, learning what are called spell lists and spell list basically you can think of as basically a chart of thematically linked different spells. So, you know, one of your spell lists uh, might be related to fire and you, it, would incorpor- it would incorporate and uh, teach you a bunch of different uh, spells related to fire or one maybe to ice or one maybe to movement, you know, or one related to changing your body. Or healing-specific uh, types of things, you know, healing muscle sprains and strains, which could be results of your critical hits. So the um, at the time, I felt it was really artificial. Like I thought it seemed really stupid. Uh, like why can't I not just learn spells here or there? Because I was more familiar with uh, the way you did it in D and D. But I've recently come to recognize that it's supposed to be sort of a once you learn a spell list to a certain level. You just know it, and as you gain levels, you keep learning more spells. And the way that that I, the authors intended that to be replicated or what, understood in the fiction is that you know you've mastered a certain area of magic, and these are just the natural things you develop as you increase in power and skill. So um, you know your if you learn say the necromancy you know uh, spell list. Uh, then you will, over the course of gaining levels, you know, be able to control and and raise more imp- and affect more impressive uh, undead things and, and so forth. Uh, so actually, like, I'm less critical of, of that particular approach. Um, but anyway, that's that's sort of the game in a nutshell. Uh, is that it? Uh, oh, one other thing I should mention as well is that it divides the the system, or rather the the um, uh, the magics into three different areas. There is uh, they all uh, at default are related to some underlying kind of magical source but each of them draws uh, each of them uh, different spellcasting class would draw either from one or two of those and then in the companions they introduce one that draws on all three but the three realms of power are mentalism uh, essence 
and channeling. And those can basically be thought of as kind of like a psychic with mentalism, though that's not quite uh, 100% accurate. Um, the essence is sort of what you would think of as like the arcane power source in uh, later versions of D&D. And channeling is the divine power source. And that would be for things like animists, which was the uh, role master equivalent of druids, at least until the companion series. Uh, gave you a druid to play, and uh, the ma magician would be the equivalent of a magic user or wizard or mage, depending on what version of D&D you're playing. Um, the other thing I guess I'd just quickly mention as well, one of the things that distinguished uh, Rollmaster from D&D was that any character could conceivably learn to do almost anything. Uh, they did, didn't mean that they learned it as easily as other classes, or that they would eventually be as competent as they would with other classes, classes which were called professions in Rollmaster, but you did have the option. And the way that they implemented that was every level you would be given a certain amount of development points, which were based on your stats, and you would spend those development points on different ranks in skills. And, you know, um, if you were playing a magician, it'd be pretty expensive to buy a level of, say, you know, a combat skill or maneuvering an armor skill. Um, but you could do it. You may be limited in the amount of levels you could develop, uh, but you could do it. It was obviously a lot cheaper for you to just learn the stuff that your profession is good at, like learning spells or learning uh, how to use magic items or so forth. Uh, you know, uh, understanding runes and, and, and whatnot. Um, and conversely, a, a fighter, it's a lot cheaper for them to learn how to hit things with sharp and pointy or otherwise dangerous things or wearing armor and maneuvering in the armor. Uh, but they could, you know, you could uh, gain um, levels uh, in uh, spells in what's called, um, uh, I can't remember, it's, it's called spell acquisition or spell learning, but in any event, a uh, um, fighters still could do that. They still could learn, you know, magic. And that was true across all the different professions. And uh, that, for the time that the game came out in the 80s, that, that was a, a degree of uh, flexibility that wasn't really present in, uh, in those games. You know, multi-classing uh, was not really a thing in first edition D&D, apart from the really complicated, well, dual classing was, that's not true. You could dual class, but that was pretty it was pretty difficult to get into uh, if you didn't house rule it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was, a, it was a degree of, you know, build the character you want with the choices you make uh, was, uh, was pretty great. Um, now, fast forward to now, and uh, I have recently come around to a product that I mentioned in a previous podcast, but... Maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll uh, take a break here so I don't, uh, in, in the event of any anchor-related hiccups, I don't lose this recording. So next we're going to talk about Jamin, Land of Mystery, or La Land of Twilight. So I had mentioned in a previous episode that there was one book that I really loved as a kid uh, that was a Rollmaster product called Jamin, Land of Twilight. And what this book was was about, uh, it was a source book uh, for the role-playing game that uh, was about a specific continent called Jamin. And on Jamin, um, there was a bunch of different sort of, to be honest, I mean, a kind of bland, you know, stock enemies. Like there was a, a threat to all life called the Unlife that was really kind of uncertain as to whether it was, it was separate from the... Um, from just undeath, so it wasn't just an undead threat, it was something kind of 
related to, but not directly related to that. Uh, there were also dragon lords, which were, you know, again, kind of a stock thing for a lot of uh, generic fantasy settings at the time. But one of the things I, re I really loved about it that made it stand out was that in the setting, there was a uh, organization called the Lore Masters. And the Lore Masters were kind of, if you think of them like a much more powerful version of the... Um, of the Harpers from Forgotten Realms, uh, or perhaps um, the... I'm trying to think of what it would be, another, like, benevolent watching thing. Uh, I guess the... Yeah, the, the Harpers are probably a really good example of kind of a benevolent, um, you know, overwatching organization that employs heroes to go out and kind of keep things safe. Well, the Loremasters uh, um, cooked up this kind of plan to keep Jamin safe from the... Uh, unlife and other threats and also from each other and create stability to create these powerful magical uh, artifacts that were keyed to different kingdoms. So there was six of them, six different kingdoms. Each of them got a an amulet that was supposed to be wielded by the advisors to the rulers, a sword that would be used by the champions of those rulers, and then a crown that was to be worn by the rulers. But it turned out that the crown was actually pretty insidious because it sort of encouraged stability and stagnation. Uh, the power, crowns gave great power to the uh, rulers to protect their realms and so forth, but the, um, the crowns themselves would also encourage you to just stay within your borders. So if you had six different rulers, kings or queens, uh, who were each ruling their own kingdom, and all of them were held in check and had no ambition to go beyond their borders, well then really the only thing that would potentially cause problems would be an invasion from without, like say, the Unlife or the Dragon uh, Lords. So it was a pretty handy little way of, of them both ensuring stability, uh, but also to um, uh, prevent any kind of conflict between the different nations. Now, um, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff, history that has happened in the course of that uh, you know, in that fictional setting that led to several uh, of the kings stopped wearing them. And as soon as they stopped wearing them, they immediately started getting ambitious. And um, then uh, uh, there was a plot whereby the unlife uh, kind of convinced some rulers to stop wearing them. And, and then basically what that meant was that the uh, without the power of the crowns to protect them, uh, these kingdoms quickly fell. Uh, and in some cases, the crowns just, or the, the rulers just quickly realized that their thinking patterns when they were wearing the crowns was very different from when they weren't wearing the crowns. So they just decided they didn't want to be pawns of the lore masters and stop wearing them, which left them, you know, open to manipulation by the um, unlife and whatnot. But in any event, that's sort of what uh, what happened. So I loved that. I thought that was very, you know, in a very kind of like um, Saturday morning, you know, cartoon or like toy related uh, cartoon way uh, it was pretty freaking cool to have, like, each kingdom had its own crown and weapon and whatnot that was key to its, you know, totemic animals. There was a wyvern crown and a phoenix crown and a unicorn sword and whatnot. And forgive me if I'm repeating this from uh, a previous episode, but it, I, I, I really love this, and I, I want to make sure you, you understand why I went back to this uh, product and this setting um, in the first place. So I uh, I decided to revisit that recently because I, I've been... At the time when I was a kid, the, you know, I had uh, said that uh, I, I didn't get the, um, 
you know, I, I had found these things super, super cool, but then never bothered getting these things into play. Like none of those magical items got into play. And in fairness to the, the product, there actually is an adventure that you play in it, um, or that's uh, featured in, in the original version of the product uh, from the 80s that uh, sets you up with as basically like lifelong friends of one of the uh, heirs to one of those things. And over the course of those adventures, this, you know, your characters get awarded ver um, copies of these things. So like, you, you know, you recover the amulet in one adventure and you recover the sword in another adventure and whatnot. Um, but the thing is, is I, so I, I thought for a long time it was just me being, you know, holding, um, holding back and, and uh, saving those uh, super cool items for just the appropriate way. And I was castigating myself in a previous uh, episode of this. When I, for, for not introducing that stuff earlier. And in particular, when there's that, you know, that intro adventure. But the thing is, is that that, like, quote-unquote intro adventure that sets them up as long, you know, lifelong friends or whatnot, well, that character is ninth level. And levels in Rollmaster are very much like they are in D&D, where, you know, you are, um, over the course of your uh, character's lifespan, you're going to start at first level, or at least that's the default way of playing. And then over the course of the campaign, your character will gain more levels. Uh, he or she will um, raise up. And, you know, 20th is really kind of the ultimate uh, level. There are rules, of course, for playing through to, like, 50th. Spell levels go up to 50th level play. But, I mean, that's bonkers. Like, the amount of time you'd have to spend playing the game to get up to those levels is pretty pretty crazy. And, as well, the, the complexity for the characters when they get up to that stage would be pretty ridiculous because you're just, you're constantly spending, every level you're having to spend a whole new slate of uh, development points uh, and creating a brand new, you know, effectively, like, you know, changing up a bunch of things about the character. And uh, that's an awful lot of math. And the reason I mention that is, like, if you were doing that over the course of a campaign, that's not a big deal. But if you're doing that all up front, that's a crazy amount of math to be doing. In particular for a game that was really, you know, around before widespread use of computers uh, and, you know, um, character creation programs and, and things like that to uh, facilitate easy character creation. Um, and the reason that I mention all that leveling stuff is because that adventure where you're supposed to be a childhood friend and you get the sword and whatever else, that's a ninth to 10th level adventure. So it's not for a starting character. It, it's something that you're designed to sort of either segue into later on, or you create characters at, uh, you know, at uh, tenth level, and then you kind of play through that adventure. And the challenges that you face in the course of that adventure are insane. Like it's one of the things that you go up against, or potentially go up against, is a nearly twentieth level uh, priest who's a signature evil villain of this whole piece, and. What that means is that you, um, the product itself kind of tells you that you cannot start off at first level, you know, the way the, the game this is, encourages you to play. You can't do that and immediately throw yourself in to, these, um, to the setting. So let's talk a bit about... I'm going to give you a little more information now about the power level that's in that product. I've gone through it again more recently, not just with the eyes of nostalgia, but actually going through it with a plan of actually bringing it to the table in 2019, including getting an updated version of it too. And I want to talk about the observations I've made with respect to that. 
So uh, as I mentioned, that uh, intro campaign kind of assumes that your character uh, is going to be around the same level as the the, um, the heir, the prince who is uh, going to be driving the campaign that gets you to get those uh, objects in, in your hand. Uh, he's level 9, so it assumes that you're really around level 9 or level 10, which is way higher than what the starting level is. And that got me thinking about the actual campaign book itself. And it's worth noting that the publishers of Jamin Land of Twilight and of um, the whole Shadow World line and of Rollmaster at the time, uh, they were also the publishers of the Middle Earth role-playing system. And uh, the Middle Earth role-playing system was kind of like a simplified version of Rollmaster that was... Um, that was to be used to, you know, roleplay in the Middle-Earth setting. And their Middle-Earth line features a crap ton of characters in it um, that uh, that are basically, that or a crap ton of character stats in them for pretty much everything in the game. Like, you know, you could find multiple different versions of stats for Gandalf and for Saruman and for, um, God, I mean, the Witch King and, and whatnot. And unsurprisingly, Aragorn, uh, you know, all those stats are pretty fucking high level. Like, all, all the characters are pretty high level in that, as is kind of necessary to make a character that could do the things that they could do in the in the original novels. Because, of course, this is before the, you know, Peter Jackson films came out. Or, and I, I don't know if it's before, I think it's after the Ralph Bakshi uh, films. But uh, in any event, the uh, that's something that I think informed the creation of... Shadow World, where there are these phenomenally powerful characters out there, and you're not going to be them. You're going to be playing in the world with them. But they did the same thing in Shadow World. And the trouble is, uh, and by that what I mean is that, uh, you know, if you if you breeze through the Shadow World product, uh, though the Jamin Land of Twilight thing, you'll find characters that are sort of like the signature bad guys who are like 80th level or 70th level. Or 120th level in one case. Um, most of the fiction that uh, sort of intros into each of the areas, it features these incredibly powerful characters as well, too. And uh, even the ones that are really kind of, uh, they seem to be presented as challenges that your characters can take on, they're still between like 12th and 20th level. So, you know, all the stuff that's in the, the book is way more powerful. It's stuff that you, there's no way that your characters could actually mechanically, you know, take on, at least not at first level characters. Uh, you could start the characters at higher level, but I mean, you would have to really start them at around 10th level to make them uh, kind of effective, to make them, to allow them to participate and and engage in a meaningful way in, in combat or in any kind of uh, struggle with these, um, these other uh, characters, the characters that they're presenting as signature characters. And I think that, um, you know, in retrospect now, like having look, looking at this from this perspective, I think that the mechanics of the game are were all along telling me that your character, your player characters can engage with this stuff. Everything about this book doesn't tell me how awesome the players are going to be in uh, playing through this this thing. It tells me how awesome all the NPCs are. You know, um, I don't. I'm, I'm not meaning to be. Um, I, I generally don't like doing uh, uh, negative reviews of uh, of things, but just because this has been, you know, this is an old product for one. So I mean, like I think that the uh, this is probably something done when the author was a lot younger. Um, but I mean, I think that what 
the authors may have done is fall into the trap that can happen when you're playing with a licensed product. Like one of the things that's really cool about playing in, you know, say a superhero game that isn't set in a licensed setting, it isn't in the DC universe or Marvel universe, is that you can set the characters to be as powerful or as important in that world as you want to be. They're not feeling like they're in the shadow of, of any other uh, characters, you know, uh, they're not feeling like they're second banana to Superman or to, you know, uh, Iron Man or, or whatever. Uh, similarly, you know, playing in a, um, a sci-fi setting that isn't, or a space opera setting that is not Star Wars, you don't feel like you're, a, you know, a, a low-rent version of Han Solo or, you know, a second, you know, tier version of uh, Boba Fett, which is, you know, sometimes what happens when you're playing in those licensed games because, you know, they're games, they're not the media on which those games are based. So there's going to be a, a, a scaling up of uh, level. The only game I know that abandons the idea of your character starting less powerful than the fictional counterparts and then moving their way up is the Doctor Who role-playing game. Doc the Doctor Who role-playing game seems to say, like, look, you're going to be as powerful or mechanically speaking and as capable as any of the uh, licensed characters and, uh, or the, the characters from the, from the, uh, the actual uh, source of the of the product, but that game actually abandons a formal leveling system or experience point system altogether. Like there's really you can uh, have characters advance, but it's really a hand wavy thing. Now the reason I mention all that stuff is because I think when the guys who designed this sat down to make Shadow World and make their equivalent their own kind of fictional world, they unfortunately carried over some of the design ticks that they did in. Middle-earth, which is to populate that world with all of Tolkien's amazing, cool characters from that uh, legendary, and th instead filled it up with their own stuff, their own cool characters, their own cool things. And it makes for really fun reading, because you read about this stuff, and you're like, wow, the characters are, are you know, the, the NPCs in here are super fucking cool, and the items are super, super cool, but how the heck do I get that into the... Like what? What does that mean for the for the actual characters? You know, how are my characters not the ones playing second banana to this? And I don't think that the product, either the original version from uh, 1989 uh, or the most recent version, really do a good enough job of doing that, uh, of communicating to me. Here's how your characters are going to play. You know, as uh, as really interesting and and awesome and important characters in the story you're going to tell in this world you know and um i think that that is probably um part of the reason why i kept feeling like you know um uh why i couldn't introduce these things until it was really time so you know the the what i mean by that is i, I why i didn't introduce the swords from the get-go or whatever else because the world was already full of important movers and shakers you know and um the player characters for a, if you're starting at first level as the game sort of recommends or at least assumes is the default play because they don't really tell you how to play it like in the original version of Rollmaster and the most recent classic Rollmaster reprints they don't tell you how to start at a higher level so what does that mean in terms of the setting versus system let's talk about that now so what I think that means is that the I talked about before in an earlier episode about the Ludo narrative dissonance, where the mechanics are telling you one thing, but the story is telling you something different, or at least um, the mechanics play up a certain 
um, certain themes, they emphasize certain themes, and the setting itself emphasizes different. So the rules of Role Master are lethal. I mean, they're very lethal. So like, you know, if you can get engaged in um, in violence, then there is a chance that, and a, a decent enough chance for characters to kind of, you know, uh, bite their you know knuckles and worry for them or the players to worry about the the successor or the survival, I should say, of their characters. Um, that's going to suggest that you're probably not going to, you know, the chances of your character living through to a ripe old age of 10th level or whatever else, you know, I mean, you have to be careful. You need to be very cautious doing that because um, it's a dangerous system, you know, and I'm assuming there that the world of Rollmaster is going to be very similar to the world of other fantasy role-playing games, which is to say that it is full of violence. Uh, there is a necessity for violence be by virtue of the you know the threats that your characters will face on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't necessarily have the option of leading a pacific, you know, violence-free, no, um, you know, uh, never raising a sword existence because that's just not the nature of the world. There are things that you cannot rationalize, with, you know, with or you can't reason with. There are just forces out there that you will only be able to respond to with uh, with violence. That's the core assumption of, I think, uh, you know, um, the bog standard D&D. &D, and same thing with Rollmaster as well. And then what that means is that it's dangerous. You know, uh, that uh, when you're engaging into the, that combat, uh, combat with Rollmaster is a lot more dangerous, I think, than it is with D&D. Uh, &D. Probably it's closer to like what GURPS is, where the... I, don't, I hate using the word, um, the word realism with role-playing games, but that's sort of what it, it you know, the consequences of engaging in violent conduct is going to be closer to what the real world results would be than what, uh, say, you know, the, the erosion of hit points or the kind of consequence-free erosion of hit points that happens with with D&D style games, you know, aside from any kind of narrative flourish that you add, that's really it. You just lose hit points and you hope you don't go to zero and die. There's no death spiral. There is in um, Rollmaster and there is in, uh, in GURPS as well. But um, that's the lessons. I think that's that's the themes that Rollmaster is playing up. It also, uh, you know, uh, plays up the importance of magical items. Magical items are incredibly important, uh, both um, not only just magical, but also like items crafted from different um, different special substances, which are replete in you know, like there's tons of different magical uh, substances in Rollmaster in the the basic books. Things like land, which is like magical glass. And um, I can't remember, to be honest, uh, some of the other ones, but uh, there are other ones. And those bonuses either, you know, uh, well, those bonuses are important regardless of whatever kind of character you are. Some of them might give you bonuses to attack. Some might give bonuses to defense. Some might give bonuses to skills. Some might increase the number of spells you can cast per day. Some might multiply the number of power points, the, the spell pool that you get to draw from to cast your spells. And that stuff's all assumed. You, you actually using the sort of default optional rules for background that everyone seemed to use for it, you can actually start with some of that stuff. You know, so you're sort of assumed to have that stuff right from the get-go, and it continues to be important as you level up. So, um, you know, when you... Uh, knowing that that's, that stuff's important in there, uh, that you need to have magic items and stuff like that, you... Uh, and knowing that... Um, 
seemingly the only way you can obtain those is by going out and, and either getting enough money to buy them from other powerful characters. And the, the system kind of assumes that the world's going to be full of other powerful characters. Um, and the reason I say that the system does is because, you know, certain magic items can only, they have pretty clear rules for crafting magic items. And they tell you that you need to be pretty high level in order to do many of those things. So that's another thing that's assumed about the world is that there are other casters out there. And the Shadow World setting itself also has an organization known as the Navigators. And the Navigators are basically like teleporters that you can pay to move you around. There are lesser versions where they, like you get, it's like the Pony Express, you could send a message with them. You could hire them to transport you in by normal means. But really what they're there for is for you to be, you know, bamfing around from one place to another if you pay the price. So you've already got those characters as well who are really high level casters because you need to be high level in order to access those abilities pursuant to the spell list that they've, they gain those abilities from. Just like in Pathfinder or in older versions of D&D, Anyone in the world is, is generally going to be using spells from the spell list. So it's stuff your character can learn or can access at a certain point. And what that means is then that there's going to be, just like in a you know high-level Pathfinder kind of world, there's going to be high-level uh, high NPCs out there, meaning that your characters are a lot lower level than what some of the movers and shakers in the world are. And now that doesn't necessarily mean that... Um, you know, uh, that that's different, that's something unique to Rollmaster. But I think that it's a kind of assumption about where your character fits in the grand scheme of things that, um, you know, that uh, fits with, or that is consistent with uh, Pathfinder and that uh, tells you something about how your, your character fits in the grander scheme of the narrative. Now, in terms of the Shadow World, though, Shadow World is still trying to... I think you have those neat magic items and stuff like that in there, and they have that adventure in there to get your characters to throw them into that stuff. So the world is telling you you can't, or the setting does try to tell you you can be a hero, but the rules don't seem to... They don't seem to necessarily share that opinion. Now, does that mean that there is an irreconcilable... Um, dissonance between what the rules say and what the the setting is trying to say you know that uh the setting tells you about these amazing places with you know lava moats outside of a dragon fortress that did you really want to go to an explorer and these crazy powerful wizards who have been alive for 10 you know a hundred thousand years that date back to three ages ago you know three eras in the past um well if you're playing the rules at first level then yeah but what if you just start the characters at 10th level? What if you just did that? You just said, look, number levels are not like they are in D&D, where level sort of relates to a mile or the milestones through which your character progresses as he or she gets further into his or her heroic journey. What if in Rollmaster, all it really measures is just power level? And you're just saying, all right, we'll start at 10th level. 10th level is a... a character who has access to some pretty interesting magical stuff can you know be a pretty big badass and handle themselves in physical combat pretty well and you're going to have access to some pretty decent um items you're a character who's not going to be fragile and dying from an accidental goblin arrow but you're not you know invulnerable you're someone who can effectively be like a hero in a novel but you're still you know the the potential for a bad critical or something like that that's still going to loom over your character 
Well, that requires a lot more investment on the player side. But if you did that, if you took it from that approach and you played a character at 10th level, so, you know, um, a character that would take a lot longer to make, obviously, uh, to, than what a first level character would be. But I think if you did that, then then you would have you would be able to engage with the the material the way that they intend. There's still plenty of characters that are a lot more powerful than you. Um, there's still plenty of things that are uh, that would you know are are certainly well above your uh, your you know fighting class. You wouldn't want to um, you know tug on a say an, an ordainer, a, basically a Balrog with the uh, serial numbers uh, filed off. But you're able to meaningfully engage with, you know, um, a group of fifth-level guards because that's what the, the game tells you. Um, so I guess maybe the lesson, the reason I, I, I want to talk about this because I have been grappling with how I can actually use this and how I could, you know, conceivably do a, a one-shot and let the cool stuff in here shine. And I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that, you know, even if I wasn't trying to do this as a one-shot, um why would I not just start the characters at that upper level anyway? Because that's what the product, that's where the product seems to all be existing. Everything that's interesting about this product that sets it apart from anything else all exists at that 10th and, and plus tier. So if I unshackle my own expectations as to what you're supposed to be doing or how you're supposed to run a game, uh, what the starting point is supposed to be, and just say, all right, let's just run this at 10th. Um, then, uh, then, and, and have that being the starting point rather than having to, you know, think of it as the heroic journey and just think of it as an, uh, abstract measurement of power level. Um, because in, in Rollmaster, you don't, apart from the spell lists, you don't gain like special abilities the way you do with other, with classes in D and D or, or similar games. You know, you don't, you don't, uh, only gain access to your mounted, whatever the hell, you know, special mount at uh, level five or whatever. You may have something like that by virtue of a spell list, but it's not a it's not baked into the rules. You are just going to be a more competent all around character, better at all your adventuring skills, better at your you know um, whatever your specialty is, be it sneaking, be it fighting, be it magical stuff like deciphering runes or using uh, magical devices. Um, and it's just a matter of you know starting a character with more points. And uh, in the same way that, you know, um, GURPS or other, you know, point generation systems start you at a different level. So I guess maybe that's the lesson here is, or what I need to do, at least if I want to engage this is, even though I assumed that this game or this product was, uh, you know, was supposed to be understood as something that you would run a full first to 10th level or first to whatever ultimate level um, path is or whatever. That, that's the, the way that the framework in which you'd be running your game. Maybe that's not what it is at all. Maybe what the author intended all along was that you would recognize this as being something for that like mid-level to upper level stuff. And you would just like because that's the power level of the setting, and you would just run the game that way appropriately, or uh, you would run it that way. Hmm. So at the outset of this, I said that uh, 
I wanted to look at how or discuss how the this particular product, this Jamin Land Twilight, uh, what it can tell us about, you know, the consequences of what you choose to include in the product. And at the time, at the outset of this, what I was thinking is that this was this thing was intended to be a introductory product and this is not doing a good job of showing me how my characters and how my players can be really badasses and how they're going to fit in this otherwise badass and interesting setting. Um, and I had been thinking, you know, sort of a bit about how to compare that to some of, in particular, some of my favorite OSR products that do a great job of showing precisely how you, from first level, you can get yourself out there and get yourself involved with the, um, the game, how your characters get in there right away. Um, but I guess over the course of thinking about this and talking this through, maybe what this product was saying all along by virtue of what it included in there is, or at least what it was implying, is that this is intended for a mid-level play. This whole thing, you're not supposed to use this. This is not designed to be a game for you to use for first-level characters to get up and, and, you know, starting off their fledgling adventures and then going on. This is about heroes. This is characters who will have a wealth of experience under their belt and, and a, um, a panoply of, of uh, skills and spells and abilities and, you know, items and stuff like that that they will be able to use to become movers and shakers in this campaign. And because they've got characters, powerful characters that are so high level in it, that just means that there's a massive upper limit or a massive ceiling to where that campaign can end. So even though you're starting at 10th, you could uh, easily adventure on until level 20, 30 and still have plenty of things that would uh, potentially be really challenging threats for you. So I guess maybe the uh, the lesson maybe for me here is don't go into looking at a product and assuming that it, it because it doesn't conform with what you thought it is, that it is therefore a deficient or substandard product. Instead, figure out what the actual product is and then see whether it achieved what you wanted. Because now that I've kind of come to the conclusion that this is, if I start at 10th level for all my characters, they're going to have a shit ton of fun with this. I can, I can throw, they can really engage with a lot of uh, fun and powerful stuff. They've um, they can feel like kind of badasses, but also there's stuff that certainly will make them run away. Um, and that's probably where, uh, Terry Amthor, the guy who, who wrote this product, where he where was thinking of, or the, the goal or the, um, that's what he was thinking of this product being used for. Huh. I really wish he had actually said that in the product at some point, but now that I've come to that conclusion, I'm feeling a lot better about this product and I have a much better understanding of how to make use of this for uh, for my series of one-shots that I want to run around this. You know, and I guess that's, you know, you. this is um, a pretty probably obvious point at this point, but the lesson I got to draw from this going forward in broader is, you know, don't look at a wrench and complain that it's not a screwdriver. This is not what this product was intended to be so for or at least that's not the way that uh all evidence of what's contained in it tells me 
so I can't bitch that it's not a suitable intro, you know, um, game. It's not that it's it's not suitable for starting fresh characters off and and uh, showing me how to fit them in that world. Instead, it's saying this is the this is where the world uh, is is happening. This is where the interesting things are doing, as evidenced by that adventure that starts the characters at ninth level. Like, boy. 30 years it took me to learn this lesson, but I thank you folks for letting me get to that conclusion. I'd sooner learn something uh, any day over just harping back over what I already know. So, yeah, so I guess that is my conclusion for today's uh, somewhat rambling and uh, scenic tour of my grappling with the um, Jamin Land of Twilight and uh, Rollmaster products. Now, if you have any que uh, questions, comments, or concerns uh, regarding this um, uh, product, re regarding Rollmaster in general, um, if you have any uh, questions about uh, Jamin, um, please don't hesitate to uh, shoot me a, a, a message on this, or you can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings, all one word in plural, uh, or you can reach me uh, by email at Dungeon Musings at uh, gmail.com but uh, anyway so that's uh, i guess the uh that is where i'm going to land on this and uh now i think i'm going to go and um start paging through my rollmaster books and see if i can't come up with some interesting 10th level pregens to make use of in 2019 so anyway thanks all hope you've had a uh, really great uh, week and i will speak to you again really soon thanks all bye bye